Well, good morning. Before you sit down, I'm going to pray and then we'll read our passage for today. If you have a Bible, a Bible app, however you read scripture, we're going to be looking at Zephaniah today. So you can turn there um, and we'll be starting right in the beginning. Before uh, we read, I just want to make you aware, if you aren't aware, in our church body, in our uh, Orangewood family, there are many who are sick right now. Uh, There are some who are grieving loss right now. Uh, There are some who are reeling from a cancer diagnosis. And I just want to acknowledge that that is going on. And um, before we move on with the sermon, I just want to pray for those in our midst who are hurting. So pray with me. God, you know our burdens and our cares, just like Jenny was saying. So many of us um, come in celebrating, but some of us come in uh, grieved and fearful for the unknown. And Lord, you know all things. You created all things. And we look to you as our healer, as our source of life, as our sustainer. And we pray for healing for those who are sick. We pray that you would, um, for those who are nursing the sick, that you would keep them well. For those who have received hard news of a diagnosis, I pray that you would be near the sick and the brokenhearted. We pray for those who have lost loved ones, that as they grieve, as they feel what they feel, that you would give them the grace not to grieve as the world grieves, but as those who have hope in the resurrection that we have because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we pray these things in his name. Amen. So stay standing just for a second. We're going to read the word of the Lord. This comes from Zephaniah, and I'm going to be reading chapter 1, verses 2 through 6. This is what it says. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the bubble, nope, and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. In the name of the idolatrous priest, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. And friends, I realize this is a bleak way to start a sermon. And yet this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I remember when I was a senior in college waiting nervously by the phone because a journalist from a newspaper in Atlanta was calling to interview me. And when I started talking to him, he explained to me that he was writing a story on the underground Christian scene uh, in Atlanta, and he wanted to talk to me about my band. And I was um, a little guarded and nervous, uh, 
when I started the conversation, but he was incredibly warm and even flattering to me. So I kind of opened up to him and we ended up talking for about an hour and a half. But when I read the article that he eventually published, it only briefly mentioned me. And the journalist took about half of a sentence that I had said that made it sound as if my agenda and my band's agenda was just to travel the country and call people out for their sin. And it made me embarrassed and angry as I read it because um, I wasn't misquoted. That was the hard thing is it was a correct quote, but I was quoted completely out of context. And I thought, what about the rest of that sentence? What about the other 90 minutes of our conversation? Um, And what I've realized is this is what we often do to God when we take his word out of context. And we know that um, skeptics who don't like the church, who don't like Christianity, who don't like scripture do this often, but we all uh, run the risk of taking God's word out of context. And the passage that I just read is from the beginning of Zephaniah. And if that's all that we knew, it would paint a really bleak picture of who God is and what our situation is. But of course, context matters, so we're gonna be talking about that. So, with that in mind, if you take a look at our miners' timeline that we've been using, um, you'll see that Zephaniah was in the southern kingdom. So this was after the split of Israel. Um, There was the northern kingdom that was called Israel, the southern kingdom that was called Judah. This is taking place in Judah, and it's only about 50 years before uh, Babylon would eventually conquer Jerusalem and send Judah into exile. If that doesn't mean anything to you, I encourage you to listen to or watch the sermon from June 6th, because we kind of gave an overview of the history and things like this, but that's showing you where this falls in the timeline And we actually know a lot about the time frame that Zephaniah was a prophet because the first verse of Zephaniah is very specific about details that help us place it in time. And this is what the first verse says. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, I imagine most of us would just kind of skim past that and it wouldn't mean much. So I'll try to tell you why that's significant. Zephaniah is the only prophet that includes this much genealogical information, which tells us that it's significant. And his lineage goes back to King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah was one of the very few good kings of Judah. Because Zephaniah comes from royal lineage, it was likely that he lived in the royal court with King Josiah, who was the king during the time that Zephaniah was a prophet. I realize I'm saying a bunch of weird names, but basically Zephaniah was a prophet during the reign of King Josiah, and he was likely living in the royal court. King Josiah was an important king in the history of Israel because he was a probably the best since David or Solomon. He was known as a great reformer because he did lots of things to purify worship and to call the Israelites back to the worship of the one true God. So this is significant because of this. 
since Zephaniah was a contemporary of King Josiah and because he likely even lived in the royal court, most biblical historians think that Zephaniah's prophecy was a big influence on King Josiah and all of his reforms. And we'll come back to that a little later. But if you know anything about Zephaniah, if you remember anything about it, you probably remember one verse, and it's Zephaniah 3.17. And this is what it says. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And this is, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful expressions of God's fatherly love for us in all of scripture. But even this, we generally tend to take out of context because before I started studying this, I knew that verse and I couldn't have told you anything else about Zephaniah. Zephaniah is only three chapters long, but it includes some of the most doom-laden, vivid imagery of God's anger and destruction in all of scripture, which almost seems incongruent with this picture in 317 of a father singing over a child. And yet the two go hand in hand. And you might remember every time I've preached on the minor prophets, I've said the, the theme that goes through the prophets is everyone includes judgment, but everyone includes hope. And this is absolutely true of Zephaniah too, but it's not until the last few verses of the final chapter that we see the hope. So we have to wonder, why is God so angry? And we're going to dive in and try to look at what's going on. So look at verses two through four with me. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And this is intense because it's not like God is saying, I'm going to punish my enemies. He says he's going to utterly sweep away everything. And we're kind of like, what did the, what did the birds do, man? Like, why are you going to kill the birds? But it's significant if you look at the order that, Lord, that the Lord says he's sweeping things away. First, he says man and beast, and then birds, and then fish. And this is significant and poetic and symbolic because it's a reversal of the order that God created. If you look at Genesis 1, it's an exact reversal of the order that things were created. So this would have hit hard with Zephaniah's audience. But if we take scripture seriously, this presents us with some big problems because first of all, this didn't happen. Total destruction. We're here, right? So it must not have happened. And so if it didn't happen, it either means that this is a false prophecy and we should probably throw out Zephaniah and maybe question the rest of scripture, or it means that Zephaniah is talking about some distant future, end times event. Those are the only two options if we take this passage out of context. But we're not going to do that. We're going to look at its historical context as well as the context of the rest of Zephaniah. So first, let's talk about the historical context. 
I'll remind you, it says, the Lord says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. But it's helpful to know that the word earth meant something different in Zephaniah's day than we would take it. We picture a globe, we picture a planet, but the Hebrew word for earth here is aduma, aduma. It doesn't matter a lot if you know how that's spelled or remember it, but it means ground or soil or land. And I'll use it in a, in a different context. Genesis 2, 7 says, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. And that word for ground there is adama. So uh, it is not a coincidence then that man is named Adam, which is where we get Adam. Adam means both man and it's Adam's name. Adam means it came from the ground, from the soil, Adama. So Adama referred to the physical ground, and it was also used to talk about like a piece of land. And this is probably what was in view for Zephaniah. And rather than me uh, trying to sound all smart, I'm going to quote somebody who's way smarter than me. So listen to this quote from the Old Testament scholar, James Bruckner. He says, Zephaniah's earth or land was a fertile crescent stretching from Cush, which is modern day Ethiopia, or the southwest, on the southwest to northeastern Assyria, down the Tigris and Euphrates rivers to Babylon. The earth meant the arable soil that sustained them daily. The land meant everything of value in and around Judah. Sweeping away from the face of the earth, therefore, did not mean the destruction of the planet in that historical setting. Rather, it meant the known world at that time. This particular destruction was accomplished in Babylon's conquest of the ancient Near East approximately 50 years after Zephaniah's prophecy, which on our timeline shows up at 586 BC. So another historical factor, uh, in addition to what Adama meant to these people is that there was common literary use of hyperbole. And if you don't know what that means, hyperbole just means exaggerating things to make a point. And it was really common uh, for not just in scripture, but uh, in Israel and throughout the ancient Near East in those days to have these big sweeping statements, especially about battles and things like that. It's almost humorous to read like you can read two different countries' account of a battle and they'll be like, we burned it down and left nothing. And then the same people will say the same thing about the same battle. So it's like, okay, you guys are exaggerating a little bit. But I'll give you an example. Um, Joshua 10 records a battle against Hebron. You might remember Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land. And so they had to, they had to conquer it because there were people living there. Um, and it says... In, in Joshua 10, that Joshua captured Hebron and, quote, left none remaining. And I'm, what I'm not trying to say is that this is a lie or that this didn't actually happen, that they didn't win this battle. But I'm saying it was hyperbolic speech to say they left none remaining because just a few chapters later, they're talking about their interactions with the Canaanites in Hebron, which tells us, okay, well, some of them were left remaining. Does that make sense? So I tell you this to emphasize that when the Lord said he would sweep away everything from the face of the earth, he didn't literally mean every living thing on the planet. And we can be certain of this by looking at verses two and three in the context of the rest of Zephaniah. Because in chapter two, verse 11, the Lord says, 
all nations will bow to the Lord following the destruction. And this means that there are nations left to bow to the Lord. So clearly, all nations weren't destroyed. Chapter 2, verse 7 says, The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah. Remnant meaning someone remained. And the remnant are those who are faithful to the Lord, who are spared in judgment. And this is a theme that pops up not just in Zephaniah, but in lots of the prophets. But all this just to say, if we read those first couple verses of Zephaniah in context, it clears up some of the questions that we have. So now let's jump back in to chapter 1 and read verses 4 through 6. The Lord says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. So now the Lord shifts his focus from all the earth in general to Judah specifically. And he gets very specific about the type of people he will cut off in Judah. And that, uh, just so you know, that phrase, uh, stretch out my hand, it's used throughout scripture and it usually refers to God's judgment either through um, another country doing something or through a natural disaster of some sort. So that's how he's gonna cut these people off. So he starts with Baals and the priest of the Baals, which seems like an obvious group for the Lord to cut off, right? Um, you may remember from a few weeks ago in the Hosea sermon that Baal, Baal, means master, and it referred to sometimes a Canaanite god, but it really meant there were many Canaanite gods that they called Baal. Canaanites believed the Baals controlled fertility for themselves, for their crops, and for their animals. So what the Canaanites were doing and what we learn even the Israelites were starting to do was in their temples, they literally had cult prostitutes where they would carry out these ritual sexual acts in, in order to um, appeal to the Baals for fertility. And basically it devolved into worship of sex and wealth. Now, I realize... Uh, of course, that this is archaic and none of us can possibly relate to a culture that would worship sex and wealth, right? But next, the Lord calls out those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens. And I think you know what this means, but um, it was common in Canaan, Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon for people to worship constellations, stars, moons, things like that. And they did this on the roofs. They actually poured things out and had these weird rituals. And so again, the Lord is cutting off more forms of idolatry. Then the Lord mentions cutting off those who swear by both the Lord and by Milcom. So Milcom uh, was another word for a false god named Molech. It means something like their king. So again, he's speaking against a false god and those who worship a false god. But what was even worse about the worshipers of Molech is part of their worship to this false god was offering their children as sacrifices. 
So these are the people, Baal worshipers, star worshipers, child sacrificers. These are the people that you would expect that God would cut off. But look at the last group he mentions in verse six. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. This hits a lot closer to home. This has been every one of us at some point, maybe this week. The thread that runs through Zephaniah is proper worship. God's priority is proper worship. And what we find is it doesn't flow from what we do. It doesn't flow from rituals and practices, but it flows from the depths of our heart. It's one thing to offer a sacrifice. It's another thing to seek the Lord. And Jesus said that proper worship is worship in spirit and in truth, not just in practice. And so the words, Lord, the, the Lord's word in Zephaniah tells us that to fail to seek the Lord is just as bad as seeking a false God. And that's, that's sobering. It should be. Because we don't have time to go verse by verse through all of Zephaniah, um, although you know I really want to, um, I'm just going to give you the cliff notes of, of the rest of it. In the remainder of chapter one, the Lord basically talks about the day of the Lord. And we've talked about how the day of the Lord and the prophets sometimes means an immediate judgment like um, what happened with Assyria in the Northern Kingdom or what's going to happen with Babylon. But sometimes the day of the Lord talks about a future event that we still look forward to, which we now have more words to put to, the return of Christ when Jesus will make all things new. But he's talking about this destructive judgment, this day of the Lord. And he gets really specific and starts naming these people groups and parts of town in Jerusalem that wouldn't mean much to us. But it's basically like if someone said, God's going to judge Wall Street, we start thinking marketplace, commerce, wealth. That's kind of what he's doing here. And chapter one ends with the Lord saying, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. It tells us something about what was wrong, what was amiss in the hearts of his people. Chapter two begins with a somewhat hopeful call to those who do still seek the Lord, that remnant. Verse three says, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. And this tells us something about the heart of God and who he wants us to be. He says, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And notice he doesn't say, maybe I'll change my mind and you can keep this from happening. At this point, it is going to happen. But maybe you'll be hidden. Maybe you won't be destroyed. And then the Lord focuses his attention away from Judah for the rest of chapter two and lists specific nations that will be destroyed. And it's enemies of Judah. It's people who have done horrible things to Judah. It's been people that they've been at war at for all this time. And what's uh, interesting is it does not mention Babylon. Babylon was the main world power at this time. If they were under anyone's thumb, they were under Babylon's thumb, and they were a very idolatrous people group, and yet they're not named. 
because they were not going to be destroyed. They were going to be the instrument of destruction on the earth. So for chapters one and two, there isn't a lot of good news for anyone. And I told you that chapter three ends in hope, but not before the Lord says more to Judah. In verses six and seven, the Lord says, I've cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Despite Judah's being the chosen people of God, despite their heritage as a people who were delivered out of slavery into a land flowing with milk and honey that they did nothing to earn. And despite having seen God bring victory over multiple nations, despite the warnings to the Northern kingdom and seeing how Assyria wiped them out, Judah still doesn't fear the Lord. They look to the nations around them that seem to grow in power and wealth, and they chased after their culture and even their gods. But these nations and their gods are mute, and they don't care about Judah, and they can't do anything for Judah. Baal can't save them. The stars can't save them. The Lord says their silver and gold can't save them. And we can look at them and roll our eyes and say, they're so stupid. But it's honestly heartbreaking that they have the Lord in their midst and they go chasing so many things that are empty. And it's not a far stretch to look at what was happening in Zephaniah's day and to see connections to our modern world and our modern culture I want you to remember Zephaniah was a contemporary of King Josiah who brought about lots of important reforms in Judah. But you know what the catalyst was for all of Josiah's reforms? He discovered scripture, the written word of God, the book of the law, which was probably Deuteronomy, meaning they didn't have it and they didn't even know it existed. Can you fathom that? 2 Kings 23 lists all of King Josiah's reforms, but I want to give you just a few of them. Josiah brought out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made of Baal for Asherah and for all the hosts of heaven, and he burned them. He deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings to Baal and to the constellations. He brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord and burned it. He broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. He removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord. He removed altars to foreign gods in the two courts of the house of the Lord. This struck me for two reasons. And the first, it gives me a strange hope and I know that that might sound weird, but I've heard multiple historians remark that pretty much every generation throughout history, when you read their writings, they think things are worse than ever. 
And in our country, it's easy to feel like things are worse than ever for us, largely because we're not the hub of the Church of Christ anymore. It's not America anymore. But if you look at what Judah was doing, building idols to foreign gods, uh, cult prostitutes, worshiping stars, they weren't any better than us three years ago. I mean, 3,000 years ago. Um, And there's nothing new under the sun. And so I'm left with this strange hope. Like, if there was hope for them, there's hope for us. But this list of Josiah's reform also strikes me as a cautionary tale. Because Josiah brought more reforms than the ones that I listed, but I named these because they all take place in the temple, the house of the Lord. And it's crazy because there were still priests. There was still the temple. There were still prophets. There were still sacrifices, but they had all these apart from scripture. And that's why they made such a mess of things. They didn't have God's word. So they went with what seemed right to them. And friends, we can't go with what seems right to us because our hearts are corrupted by sin, just like everything else in creation. Our only truth and our only authority is God and what he's revealed about himself and ourselves through his word. It's a gift to us. That's why when we read the Lord's word, you reply, thanks be to God. Because however hard it is to hear, it's a gift. If we seek what is good and true apart from the one who is good and true, we're going to make a mess of things. And I don't personally know anyone who has honestly wrestled with the truth of scriptures and come to the conclusion, for example, that belief in Christ really isn't that important as long as you're a good person or that being part of the body of Christ isn't really that important, or that God isn't clear about his good design for sexuality and gender and marriage, and we can decide what we feel is right. And I would say of all these things, the message from our culture centered around sexuality and gender is the elephant in the room for the church. And I don't mention this at all to stir up fear or anger, but I mention it because it's the biggest cultural debate in our country and perhaps the world. And I know that you hear about it at work and at school and in the media and just about everywhere except here. But I long for this church to be a safe place to ask questions where we can wrestle through complex issues as the family of God under the authority of the word of God. Because We don't want to leave you to figure it out on your own. And I desperately don't want you to go outside the church or outside of scripture to decide what the truth is. We don't decide what the truth is. Jesus is the truth. We belong to a denomination called the Presbyterian Church in America, or you'll hear it more commonly referred to as the PCA. And as the denomination, we affirm scripture and believe that God's design for marriage Gender and sexuality is inherently good because God is good and all creation is good. And God gives us the clear bounds that marriage can only reflect Christ's love for the church when it's shared between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. 
And we don't need to apologize for that, and we don't need to water it down. However, because all of creation is affected by sin, this includes our sexuality. And it would be foolish to talk about this as if it was an out there issue, like this doesn't affect us. I know there's some here in this room, in our family, who wrestle with sexuality and gender. And I know that many of you have children and family and close friends who wrestle with these things. Many of you are trying to reconcile what culture says is bigotry with what you've been raised to know as truth. And we need the word of God to guide us. We need to work through these hard things in community as God's people, as God's family. I recently received a letter from a fellow follower of Christ, and I want to read just a few sentences of it to you. It says, I need the church now more than ever. I am surrounded by the message that compels me to follow every tug of my heart, every impulse of the moment. I'm drowning in it. This message tells me that I'm depriving myself of goodness by saying no to my desire for relationship with a person from the same sex. It tells me that I am hateful towards myself and others because I choose to live celibately, accepting the high cost of following Jesus. It tells me that marriage is about getting your needs met through another person rather than a creation metaphor of Christ's sacrificial love for the church. This should move your heart. Brothers and sisters, we need scripture and we need one another. And for this reason, I want you to know that your pastors are discussing and praying about creating some forums and some spaces for us to talk about these issues and other issues because they're more complex issues than just this one. But we want to hear your concerns and we want to wrestle through them with you and we want to bring scripture and let it speak first. Until we nail that down, know that you can come talk to me. I'd encourage you to talk to an elder or a pastor. I would encourage you to talk to your community group, but don't try to wrestle through these things apart from scripture or alone because None of us are meant to do this alone. And I realize that when we're discussing these topics, we have the propensity to be led by fear or by anger. But fear and anger are not fruits of the Spirit. So I pray that we would be led by the Spirit and compassion for one another as we discuss these things. Does that make sense? So how did I get there from Zephaniah? God's people stopped seeking God in his written word, and they started looking to the culture around them to decide what was best. And this led to destruction. But then the Lord continues in verse 8 of chapter 3. It says, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, from the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. This sounds like really bad news. But it's not. Because when we read on in chapter 3, we see the hope and the beauty and the truth that God's consuming fire is not just a fire of destruction, it's a fire of purification. 
Ever since sin entered creation and separated us from God, our hearts have longed to be near him again. That's what we all long for, whether we're conscious of it or know how to put the words to it. That ache, that sense that things aren't the way they're supposed to be is they're not. We were created for communion with God. So we need something to make us holy. And God looks forward to a day that we will be made holy, a day in Christ. So read with me the last few verses in Zephaniah, starting in verse 14. It says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. And then here's that beautiful verse. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So doesn't it mean so much more when we hear it in its proper context? The king in our midst is Jesus Christ, and he's taken away the judgment against you by taking it upon himself. A few nights ago, I was um, up in the middle of the night rocking our one-year-old son, Jude, which happens more than I would like, but... um, It's one of those things where like, I'm never excited to be up at 2 a.m. And then he just kind of like nestles into my chest and I'm like, okay, this is, this is all right. And I was sitting there and I was just wondering at his tiny little features and his weird mannerisms. And um, I was just talking to God in my heart as I looked at him. And I was pondering the fact that I can talk to God with no fear and yet It's the same God who spoke through Zephaniah saying that he's jealous and will burn everything. And I'm no less a sinner than any of those who were in Judah. And I deserve God's wrath just as much as they do. But God poured his wrath out on Jesus on my behalf. And skeptics hear this and call it uh, divine child abuse. But I know that it's sacrificial love because Jesus is God. And Jesus died for me. And it's not divine child abuse. It's a divine mystery that someone so perfect and so good would die for sinners. God now makes his home in the hearts of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. So the temple is no longer a building in Jerusalem. The house of the Lord is our hearts. And I want you to think of what the people of Judah were doing with the temple of the Lord, filling it with idols, worshiping false gods. And I want you to think about what false god you chase after in your heart, believing that it'll somehow complete you or give you what you need. And remember how Judah got to the place that they were in. In Zephaniah's day, they didn't seek the word of the Lord. And so friends, again, I want to say it's a gift, it's a guide, it's a lifeline, and sometimes it's difficult to wrap our heads around. That's why we need one another. In John 6, 
You probably remember the most famous stories. Jesus fed the 5,000 with a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. But after that, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me won't be hungry anymore. And we've heard this. We have it cross-stitched on pillows and things like that. So it doesn't hit us the way Jesus' original audience would have perceived it. But that was a bold statement and kind of weird. In fact, it says that the disciples said, uh, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus didn't stop there. He went on to say, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. There are things in scripture that are hard to understand. And it says, after this, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? Lord Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. And you have given us your word. And it is a gift to us. Not one that we have to earn. Not one that we can earn. But one bought for us. By the blood of Christ. By the resurrection of Christ. By the ascension. To the right hand of you, Lord God. And the good news. As he sits by your side, interceding on our behalf right now so that we can always come to you. Lord, your voice is still and small. Will you tune our ears to hear it amidst the clamor of the nations and the culture and the false gods? Tune our ears to hear your heart and let us seek you as one in your word. And we pray these things in the blessed name of Christ. Amen.